Welcome back to season two of The Aspiring Spirit. This will be our first full episode in this new year. My name is Dr. Kanan McKenzie. And I am Andrew DeFranza, and we are your co-hosts. So we all know that we've been inside for the better part of a year, more or less. People are experimenting and considering different ways of interacting as households and as neighbors and friends and co-workers. For some people, this has been a welcome respite and they've enjoyed the chance to be quiet and at home for their personality if they're more introverted. For others, they've really struggled with the limitations and the new formats. But for everybody, there's been questions about how you support and facilitate community during the pandemic and then how we want to think about coming out of the pandemic, what ways we might want to continue with community building and community interaction, what ways we missed from the way things were before, perhaps what we've learned during the pandemic. And in my mind, most of all, who do we really want to be going forward as communities and how might we support that effort? And there are a variety of ways probably to think about that. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um... I would definitely say that I've heard to your earlier point about some people seeing it as a respite and benefiting from it. Certainly heard families talk about how they've reconnected with each other, um, even with the difficulties of homeschooling or supporting hybrid or remote learning, that families feel like they um, learn more about each other or that they actually know more about what their kids do in school they felt sympathy and connection to educators who might need, you know, additional flexibility and support. So I think for those who have school-aged children, the school sector has been very central to how you think about community. Even if you were not necessarily connected to other parents, you're realizing the limitations around community when it comes to what children need and how they socialize differently. Now, we'd want to be clear that in all cases, this is a time that's been a lot of loss and grief for people, those who've lost loved ones or people they cared about, like us, to COVID, uh, and others who've had economic pressures and other stressors, and those who've had other losses during this time where they weren't able to grieve like they normally would have. So we want to respect and honor that there's a lot of sadness and difficulty in the middle of this challenge. And at the same time, I think we're interested in thinking about what have we learned during this time about ourselves and what do we want to take forward from that to build better communities, better society as we're thinking about the days, the days ahead, the days coming. So I'm wondering, uh, Kanan, what you think about what happened that you would view as valuable things that we've learned even in the middle of this hard time and things that we might want to think about going forward with either how we've had them during the pandemic or things we've learned in that process that we might want to parlay into a, into a different way of being into the future. What do you think? Well, I've been giving a lot of thought to virtual connecting and before the pandemic, we were always sensitive to like our own children not being on screens too much and wanting to connect in person with what's happening in the world. And certainly I think we've, be, we've gotten more creative about the virtual space being a better reflection of reality. And so that we can find real news and real unfolding issues 
virtually to better connect ourselves to what's happening because that was frankly the only way a lot of us could safely get that information so rather than social media essentially being what we used to think of it as like a place for you know entertainment and uh, other things like that it also became a place where we could get updates on real life situations that we all wanted to know more about Although the rollout was not perfect in near any district, I think we can agree that being able to provide educational experiences for children virtually became a way of life for many people. Whether that was touring museums virtually or continuing to teach content virtually, you know, certainly the best scenario for many districts um, for whom figuring out an in-person experience um, required more time or a way to keep that um, more safely done. Now we certainly learned even in virtual communication with children and in schools some things that probably deserve a little more attention and thought. For example, partnering with families and parents to engage in education became necessary. And in some ways I would argue we might want to keep some of the ways that we truly held parents as partners mm in terms of the kind of information they needed to have about what was being taught in their communicating with teachers perhaps more freely than before. And also in noticing the ways that children sometimes received more individual attention depending on how the class was set up virtually, where you could have breakout rooms with smaller groups and talk about things on a more um, scalable, smaller level uh, for some learners. We also learn that there's tremendous value in some of the ways we do things in person in education as well. And I think that certainly some of the good learnings we did around what can work for some students in terms of maybe smaller class sizes, more time outdoors because it was necessary, shouldn't be lost after this. One of the things I can think about is um, where in one setting, there was hybrid school attendance for K-8 to school, and teachers were noticing that children who were spending more time outside were behaving better mm. and having less discipline issues. Now, you know, for the average person, it may not sound like a, a really big deal to say maybe children behave better if they get to run around more outside, but you can imagine in the typical school schedule, allowing for that could have been more difficult in the old way of doing things because of the way we want to cover content or where we think we have to teach. And so, for example, if we're finding that discipline and behavior and attention is improved by more time outside, maybe when we go back to our traditional experience, we rethink just how much education needs to happen indoors all the time. Mm. And I think those are some of the things that I can immediately think about that were good sort of valuable pieces of information that we could take with us and think about how to incorporate into future planning and into the ways we've learned children uh, benefit from um, some of the natural changes that we've had to make. And I can you know, certainly go more into detail about that with schools, but I definitely find that even with the loss of being able to go to school in person, which in some cases felt necessary or uh, simply were just logistically the best a district wanted to 
um, tackle at the time, given all the other considerations, that in some instances, we learn that some things that happened as a, a means to keep school safer, like smaller class sizes or having more children have access to technology, even when they're not in school, having children get more wellness checkups, asking families about their needs around food security and all those things are not necessarily things we want to immediately stop doing. So I wanted to ask you, Andrew, what your thoughts are around community and when it comes to how we think about our neighbors and community members and what you've been seeing in your space as somebody who is, um, you know, doing a lot of work in housing and in particular thinking about housing for those who are, um, you know, underserved or under-resourced. Like what are some of the things that we're thinking about how to make sure that those communities continue to feel um, like they're going to get the attention they need even after the pandemic? Yeah, it's interesting because some of the some of the challenges are have been around creating network and access points for resources like food, medical access to really vulnerable populations, people that are homeless or seniors or others. And the partners, I think, that are involved in providing those things have worked really well together during the pandemic, as they did before. Um, but to create uh, access via proximity, um, and I think that is a huge thing, both for the school systems, as you just described, uh, for the housing system and for others, there is, the, I, there is this, I think, dominant idea, we've been thinking about it lately, that that at some points, proximity just about equates access. And that could be physical proximity if it's a physical need, or it could be technological uh, proximity, meaning access to um, reliable internet service or devices, uh, that, that really the proximity of a resource can determine its access or not. You and I were just talking about how in some places where there was food access, if you, it may have been available, but not proximate, and that essentially the lack of proximity would have meant the lack of access. Right, um, like when you have essentially meaning for like, I hope my middle schoolers listening to this, you know, you can offer a service, but if it's hard to get to it, that's, that's right. difficult. So we were noticing that right. school districts were trying to do a really great job of making school meals available for families. Applause, applause. Right, which is like a great effort and necessary in so many cases. Um, but we did have to think about in instances where it was not a neighborhood school and you couldn't just walk a couple blocks, right. then people couldn't even access the food because you have to think about the cost of going to get the food if you don't have a car right. or if the weather's bad or you're having to work during those hours where that distribution's happening. And, you know, normally the child would be in school accessing the meal directly. Right. And so if you have instances where families are now facing economic insecurity and having issues with um, affording food for everybody who's home all day and having to supply all those meals, you can you can see how quickly that could be right. very stressful, but then you've got to go travel across town. So definitely to your point, Andrew, just thinking about how near you are to the resources you need is really important too, right. and, and not simply making them available, particularly right. when you're being asked to stay as close to home as possible. Yeah, yeah, that was that's a it's a great point. Um, the the 
the ways in which in this case we had double we had multiple levels of ethical or practical goals we were trying to achieve and they weren't all in the same direction which is sort of an interesting was an interesting problem uh, and something to raise I think around the proximity is access point and again by proximity I, I don't mean just physical proximity but digital proximity which I think speaks to questions like the the need to make a move at a policy level to consider the internet a public utility um, and to manage its access because that because the proximity of the digital access essentially equates in you know quote unquote what we're calling now with what's the real world and not the real world mm-hmm. and how much in this experience the digital world in some real measure became a huge part of the real world um, and so I think we're having to think about the outcomes around usage, meaning I think there have been times before, at least in my experience, where I would have heard people say, such and such a resource is accessible. Here's a good example. After school sports programming is accessible to kids. um, And uh, it's at this location at these times. And one of the the issues, as you just raised with the food, is that may be true. It is there at that time and a kid could participate. There might even be scholarship funding for kids to participate. However, if they don't have mobility, if they don't have, if a parent doesn't have transportation access there and back again, or if the parent doesn't have a schedule where that's allowable, the fact that it is that it is um, available doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be used. And so I think we need a radical, uh, or at least a significant rethinking of questions of proximity and access that are more borne out by participation data, meaning outcome data, as opposed to availability data, meaning if the sandwich is available at a location and no one can come to get it, how useful is that? Mm-hmm. Um, and that we should stop. I think there is, there's almost a punitive level where we think, well, the sandwich is here, somebody just needs to go and get it, as if the lack of going to get it is somehow indicative of a lack of will or initiative or participation, when it may be a lack of resources or, or networked thinking as to how things are accessible around transportation and, uh, and other access points. But I think we found this even... You know, um, vaccine rollout, like people saying there's a vaccine available and then you're hearing about needing to go online to access it. And then the question, of course, is, okay, that means you have to be able to have Internet to get online. And then if you have to print something out, that means you have a printer and you can organize all of that at home. Comfort level with the digital universe. If you're elderly, we've had a number of people where Mm -hmm. I think there was an article maybe in the Globe this weekend where. You know, younger family members or neighbors digitally facilitating the access of older family members or neighbors mm-hmm. through the morass of the of the process to locate it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a vaccine point, but to have this sort of series of one-offs that's driven by, um, you know, strictly a it's here in an amount that's more limited than the need is, and we're gonna just continue to play that way until everybody gets it. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like a difficult way to approach if the goal or the outcome is universal vaccination. Well, the other interesting thing I just read about too um, that's in the news is there is a county in an unnamed state uh, where there was a a bringing of the vaccine to that specific county. And in order to get the vaccine, you had to have a a zip code in that county to get it. Um, And so for many people, they cried you know, an ethical foul on that because they thought, well, if this is really supposed to be about your age and whatever criteria that the state laid out in this particular state, but we are now literally putting it in a particular neighborhood and saying you have to have that zip code to access the vaccine. 
uh, there was a question around whether that community got that treatment because it was a very affluent community. Mm-hmm. Whereas when other communities were getting access points, it was in places that were sometimes potentially hard to get to or it was really hard to or you know get appointments right. because you're competing with like thousands and thousands of people. Whereas somebody decided to make it possible to just enter your zip code and then immediately be able to get directly to a point where you can just make an appointment because now you're not competing with anybody outside of that zip code for that access point. And their argument was we're making it easier for people to get this vaccine, but it also means that you have to live in this affluent zip code to get that level of efficiency to get to it. Um, And so we're starting to really, again, raise awareness around accessibility, around ethics and when we say something is available, whether we're measuring the ability to actually get the outcome we want, because we've thought through all the issues you raised around proximity and ability to access the resource. Right. You have to have capacity to go with availability. Right. And we and we can't make everything perfect, right? Like we right. know that for whatever reason, people will have different accommodation needs or issues. But to the best of our ability that we can think through what some of the common challenges would be, I think we should do that. So if we're saying that the age range at this point is 75 and older uh, are eligible and we have lines where you may potentially have to stand for hours, that's a challenge, right? If we're thinking about seniors who may have mobility challenges because of age and and health um, conditions. So therefore... um, doing really wise thinking around that like your organization did around making it more accessible by being making it more proximate to the those who need it it was really smart and ethical because the likelihood that in the middle of winter in chilling degrees in new england that we're going to have folks who are 75 and older standing in line for what could be hours um, is just thinking about really you know trying to be fair in terms of accommodations so these are all things that I feel like are really going to get good conversation and attention. And that's positive, even though we're in the middle of something that is right. challenging. Right. We're noticing things that will, I think, help us improve the way we really talk about um, what being in a society where we're trying to be thoughtful about the different needs of individuals are and what our institutions are responsible for, what our communities can do in those areas where our institutions you know, have a, a boundary. Um, and how to make those things be better aligned. What do you What do you think about? I think that's all spot on and, and accurate for us to and valuable, right? I think it's it's very valuable and wise to take even from a painful situation like this things that we're learning about that we can move into the future to make improvements in terms of equity or quality or the like. I wonder what you think about. You know, we've had interesting experiences around social what i would consider socialization questions of community you know in places where there were events or activities that would have happened i noticed the kids saying oh i can't wait till this i can't wait till that and they Mm -hmm. mentioned like street fairs and Mm -hmm. neighborhood gatherings and going to the park i do think there is a value in this moment of us 
reflecting on many of the goods of communities that are present and how valuable they are mm -hmm. and that a lot of those involve people actually being physically together mm -hmm. um, and so there's a part of me that wants to pause and say hey you know that work all of those all of those entities who do that work to make those things happen really important because we're we're whatever it is about human connection and being together um, the absence of that people I think are noticing uh, mm -hmm. in, in great measure but then we've also had things where where it's gone both ways I, you know I would like to comment to our listeners that you've had more than one um, enjoyable zoom um, DJed dance parties through your through your <laughs> alumni association that you have seemed to enjoy big red you have seemed to enjoy extensively <laughs> Um, and so, and, and doesn't seem to have been a problem, and yet it's different than having a party in totally person. Totally different. Cornell Black Alumni Association. There we go. Shout them out. Um, birthday parties we've yeah. done right, a couple different ways. We've had drive-by birthday parties. We've had mm -hmm. Zoom birthday parties. Um, Zoom weddings we've witnessed. We've had Zoom weddings. Yep. Yeah, so it's sort of interesting to pause and affirm things that mm -hmm. the presence but then also to think like oh we've had to do this now multiple ways are we learning mm -hmm. anything about it for example will cornell black alumni association have zoom dance parties forever and ever now will that be the thing um, i don't know that's my vote i figured yes. i hope you're listening In john introverts <laughs> introverts introverts unite by themselves in their own houses <laughs> hey listen i mean you know we um well, that was a really big part of our our undergraduate experience and i think you know we certainly looked forward to like our saturday night let your hair down experience and then somebody had the brilliant idea of like well why aren't we doing that now during the pandemic now could we have done it if we hadn't thought about zoom socializing and networking um in that way i, I mean we definitely didn't think about it before and it will not replace, I am confident ah. in saying, our desire to do that in person at reunions and so forth. But am I speaking and seeing, mm. you know, speaking to more Cornellians and seeing more of them mm. online now? Like, for sure. Um, and I definitely didn't see any downside to that. Um, so I think that there are certainly ways that my meetings have been more efficient because I can see and interact with way more people than if I'm driving to and from meetings or traveling to meetings. So even in terms of thinking about how to be more helpful in my profession as an educator and to be more collaborative with groups and stakeholders that I would have just frankly had a maybe more challenging logistical time meeting up with or talking to, like I feel like those things have all been really good and positive and I, I can't imagine that we'll ever completely go back to expecting that we'll, we'll rely you know, most of the time on having to see together. I think if you can't meet with somebody in person, people are going to default to, well, can we meet yeah. online? Can we try these mm. other mediums to connect? Mm. And if you have people who are in multiple locations or in other countries, like mm. the possibilities of really building networks that way seems to really be viable. So I'm, I'm a really a big fan about trying to keep the hybrid world going if it means that we are benefiting um, society in good ways. But certainly... Like you said, some things I definitely miss doing. Certainly my big Caribbean family gatherings, like I miss those. Um, we don't really know how to do it small. So when we have 200 person weddings, like I miss, I miss those. Um, I miss playgrounds where you meet strangers and just like mm -hmm. play together and not worry about your kids being masked and too close to them. Um, you know, I miss like services, whether like religious services or, you know, mm -hmm 
bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, any, you know, all those things like that people do in houses of worship where you expect to hug people and be near them and to be singing. Like those are things I absolutely miss. Um, but even in schools, choruses are struggling because whether or not children can sing is a question. Playing instruments near each other that require blowing into the instrument, like is a question. Like those are things I would have never, ever anticipated in life schools worrying about. And mm -hmm. so being able to sing with your fellow classmates and graduate together in a big group, um, you know, play sports and not worry about contact. Like those are just amazing things that we took for granted um, that I, I really miss watching and observing and seeing and participating in. And, you know, I think missing those things and knowing like the way we did them requires being together mm. makes them more special now, I think. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's sort of we had this forced absence of a thing we valued that that we probably all knew we valued, but the the being required to do without it raised raised it in our minds as oh this is really what well, physical proximity, you know, as for community building and community thriving is critical, right? I think mm -hmm. we we've learned that that we have to have that, and then it does seem like there's this both and feature, which is almost like. We definitely have to have that, but are there also are there also ways we can augment that with different versions of access that might include more people, people at a distance, for example, or people who have um, uh, a mobility challenge or some other reason why they can't physically get to a place mm -hmm. or be in a place, but they still want to be there. It does feel like there's a there's an opportunity for more inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, with this, I like the way you put the hybrid reality going, this both and hybrid going forward, um, that it's not a replacement for, I think for those who are sort of solely in the digital world, there are things we're not going to be able to do just digitally, um, in the, in the, the physical world, but it may not be an either or, um, moment. It might be, a, it might be a both and kind of a moment. So I, you know, I think we're thinking about now if we're having a birthday party for the kid, you know, for one of the children or the grandparents at a different place digitally involved, I think that's a hard yes. Um, you know, are there ways we're going to need to be thinking about, do we need to stream the uh, ninth grade chorus concert that happens, you know, in a way that we might not have thought before so that, you know, residents can see that? Um, probably. Uh, and some of that we were doing through like community access TV and those sorts of things. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think even, yeah, even, even questions it's also dramatically, I think, affected questions of what communities are. I know we have some friends and that are faith leaders who are seeing their congregations now no longer be just local or just widely dispersed because now they still have their local hub of people who knew each other in person and then people who've left who are the area who are participating or new people they never met before who are mm -hmm. participating or staffing in multiple places at one time. So I don't know, I'm just... I'm, I'm struck by how important being together is, but how we might be able to to add more to that by being together in, in both physical and digital ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's going to be really interesting to see how it unfolds, but I'm feeling like at least in the education space and in the, you know, sort of um, child development space, human development space, we are certainly appreciating how much children benefit from being with other children mm. but we're also appreciating that when they can't be together that we need to have some supports in place right. um you know one of the one of the jokes for 
conversation around here was when the kids were like, does this mean we have no more snow days, right? Like this idea that like, hey, learning can continue anyway, mm-hmm. um, even when your school has to close. So, um, so that's kind of an interesting concept too. Like, will we make it where we actually try to have technology always available to students in the event of an emergency or a weather event and whether that's a good thing? Um, and that actually, you know, helps us to be a little more thoughtful and efficient about yeah technology not being an emergency use, but an expectation that children have access to that. And to your earlier point about, you know, internet being considered more of a public good versus something that you afford if you can or cannot, because it's become essential to functioning when unexpected things happen. So, um, yeah, I would love to see how, you know, districts and local governments and state governments certainly are, you know, tackling this. Um, and thinking ahead, not that we want to anticipate pandemics being anywhere close to each other, but just being aware that we've learned some things about being able to connect in different ways. Mm. And also knowing that we certainly have confirmed that for our children in schools and for communities, that there's some irreplaceable aspects of human experiences that we want to continue to have in person and that we really hold dear and we're developing some consensus around. Um, But will we be able to amplify and share bigger messages on social media and maybe see social media play a more central role in organizing for real life issues like around the George Floyd um, moment in time last year where it spurred Mm. a lot of activity online? Um, I think that will continue to happen and it will have a more central role in recording and speaking about what's relevant in person, but that they're going to be continued need and uh, support for reconnecting physically, like when that's safe and when it's possible, because we definitely know we need it. And we know that there are some things that we may have lost as a result of not being able to have that. Mm. No, I think that's right. And I think it's a, I like your amplification language and wondering if there's going to be, you know, I'm sure there'll be other fallouts that are where we, it's almost like we want the highest version of inclusion and access along with senses of uh, boundaries and, and management. Like I'm thinking about the way technology has influenced work culture in this client, in this moment where we can work anytime, anywhere in certain jobs, mm-hmm. that that's really an excellent thing for not having, for cutting down commuting and for managing household, but it, the water flows both ways, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, is Sunday morning uh, an acceptable time for somebody to schedule a meeting? Socially, we would still say no, mm-hmm. um, you know, but to answer email, we might say yes. And so how do we how do we amplify the good that we've learned about inclusion and access while still maintaining sort of human spaces and common boundaries for different sorts of, of community building activity at the family and the um, and the community mm-hmm. level, um, it's going to be an interest. My guess is we're evolving in this mm-hmm. space, and it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Well, I think we'll be continuing to explore that in this space, and we're definitely happy that there's a virtual way to share what we're thinking about with everybody. So I have uh, definitely, I think, captured on that sentiment of like, huh, you know what? There's a new way, like this podcast, to be able to talk to a broader range of people. And that's definitely another added blessing, I think, in this process. So very grateful for that and happy 
that you all are tuning in and listening to what we have to say. It's really a gift. We're grateful. And if you would like to advocate for an aspiring spirit dance party uh, Zoom experience <laughs> at some point in the future, you should make a comment or send a note and let us know that that's something you'd be interested in. I think Dr. McKenzie is <laughs> potentially an excellent lead for that activity. Uh, I, I concur. Awesome. Well, we will see you all again on our next Take care. episode. Bye now. So with that, I think we're going to have some really good takeaways from this situation uh, in light of the tremendous challenges that we've had in front of us and loss. Um, hopefully we can see what we also have gained in our understanding about how to make things um, holistically better for ourselves as a society as we think about what community means in the new rendition of things. Yeah, I think that's right. It's a, it's a good way to... I think be both somber uh, about some of the losses, but grateful about some of the joys and hopeful about some of the opportunities into the future. So we really appreciate you being with us through this episode of Aspiring Spirit and hope that you'll join us again in the future. All right. See you next time. Take care.